0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film by Numbers from Outward Film Network. We are the film podcast in which the topic of discussion is dictated by the number of the episode. And do check out our back catalogue which contains everything from film twists to James Bond. My name is Phil Slatter and I'm joined once again by Mr David Woods. Evening David.
1: Evening Phil, it's good to be here. But to be honest I thought earlier this week if I don't get invited on this one there will be blood
0: he gives a little teaser as to what we're going to be talking about. I bet you uh, listeners can guess from that. But also joining us, we've got Neil Palmer for his Film by Numbers debut. Neil is a filmmaker whose short film The Fire Within it was made under the Outward Film banner and is on our YouTube channel. He's also a big film fan. Uh, welcome to the pod, Neil.
2: Thanks, Phil. That's a lovely introduction. Can I just say that there's a theme tune to this podcast, isn't there? Yeah, you composed it, didn't you? Yes, yes. Thank you. Yes yes i should
0: give credit for that as well man of many talents it would seem now you can search outward on a uh, facebook instagram and our youtube channel and our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com now as dave alluded to this is episode number eight and we have called this heart eight meaning we are going to be discussing the films of the writer and director paul thomas anderson
3: i saw a cat have a heart attack right at the craft table
0: bam The
3: game just keeps going on. I mean, people are yelling, place the eight. Somebody call an ambulance, place the nine. Meanwhile, this old bastard's laying on the floor. Like, the people are still playing. You know those big monster books of matches?
4: I had one of those in my pocket once. And I'm standing there in line for a movie. And all of a sudden, just wham! I have to make money i have bills i have an apartment that i have to pay for i have a car i have a camaro i mean that costs money you know
3: come on old time you gonna join us two thousand dollar heart Oh man you play that game you are big time
4: hello captain
3: tell me something are you required to flirt as some part of your job
4: they don't say to do it but if you don't how to lose the tip
3: you know how to count cards no if you don't know how to count cards better stay away from blackjack
4: i'd like 150 in dollar tokens I see the way John worships you and like follows you like you're his captain.
3: John is a very old friend.
4: I haven't told John, but I know about Atlantic City. He thinks you don't like him. I don't. Do
3: you realize how serious this is? Where am I gonna go? I don't know, John. Way, anywhere, way. What about Niagara Falls? No, I'm not at Niagara Falls. Why not? Ah. I've been there before. Ah! Talking about kidnapping, extortion. This shooting. man owes me, and now he's gonna pay me! You get the money up front.
2: Pardon! Ah!
0: Now, the film that gives us our title, Hard Eight, came out in 1996. It's a neo-noir that expands Anderson's own short film, Cigarettes and Coffee. The cast includes Philip Baker Hall, Gwyneth Paltrow, John C. Riley, and Samuel L. Jackson. It wasn't a commercial success, and I think it would be largely forgotten were it not for the career that Anderson would go on to have. Personally, I only discovered it after getting an appreciation for his later work. He followed up. Part 8 with the ensemble drama Boogie Nights, which followed the lives of pornographic filmmakers in the late 70s and 80s before making the epic ensemble drama Magnolia. A complete change of tone saw him make an Adam Sandler comedy in Punch Drunk Love, and since then he has battered between dramas such as The Master, There Will Be Blood and Phantom Thread with more lighter-hearted affair such as Inherent Vice and *Licorice Pizza. Uh, I first watched Boogie Nights in the late 90s, and I think I was probably too young to appreciate it. But it was Magnolia that really made me appreciate his work. And I remember watching it and thinking, I wish I'd made that. And that was the first time I'd ever had that reaction watching a film. Um, Starting with you, Dave, what was your introduction to P.T. Anderson? Um, I
1: think, yeah, I'm kind of struggling to remember a little bit, but I'm pretty sure it was There Will Be Blood. Um, It was the first film of his I saw all the way through anyway. Um, Yeah, so that was, yeah, yeah. In his, in Um, his sort of career, Yeah, it was. I mean, I was. I knew his Anderson's name from Boogie Nights because that was released in ninety seven, and it was very notorious at the time. And there was, I remember there being a bit of chat at school about Mark Wahlberg's presence, shall we say, um, (laughs) in the film, and it made a bit of news in film circles. So there was a bit of notoriety around Anderson and Boogie Nights at the time. So I was, I was aware of him as a filmmaker, but I hadn't actually. I never got to watch it at the time and then I was drawn to see there will be blood I just thought it really seemed an interesting concept and it blew me away you know it's got this fierce oil-soaked atmosphere and perfect composition and this fusion of elements into an outstanding I don't know it's like a complete deconstruction of capitalism and religious hypocrisy and it just left me dazed and astounded it remains one of my very favorite films to this day Um, And of course, I just quickly worked my way through PTA's back catalogue from there.
0: And what about yourself, Neil? How did you first uh, come across Anderson's work?
2: Yeah, so it was the same for me, Phil. Um, I have this memory of, um, I'm not sure exactly when this was, I'm going to say sort of like early 2000s-ish, probably 2003, 2004. Um, I remember coming back from some some kind of like family party and um, it was about like 10 o'clock at night and we switch the TV on, and we were all kind of just standing around, and there was this this really strange film on where this guy was jumping off of a building, and it just started, and um, and yeah, and then he gets accidentally killed, and he's trying to commit suicide, and all this kind of stuff, and I was just completely intrigued by this opening sequence, um, and then my brother came downstairs, and he was like, he he'd seen Magnolia, and um, and he was, like, oh, this is Magnolia, you should watch it, so I did. And, and I was hooked three hours later. I was like, who is this guy? And then similar to you, Dave, um, fast forward a few years later, um, There Will Be Blood comes out. And I remember watching, because I got this thing where I have to watch like all the Oscar, Best Picture Oscars, uh, Best Picture nominations, excuse me. Um, and I remember watching There Will Be Blood and Juno on the same day. So, um, and I remember walking out the cinema and going, okay, this guy is something extraordinary really as, as as a director and that was and then I went back and watched Biggie Nights and Hard Eight and everything before that and then ever since anything's come out after that as well I've been there quite early on. When did you
0: first come across Hard Eight because personally it was only after I'd seen a few of his films and I thought I should really become a bit of a completist and go back and seek it out and I watched it and I was impressed I think um I haven't watched it for for a little while but I remember it thinking it had a good cast and it certainly showed the potential of what he would be capable of. But in an odd way, it's not a film that a lot of people go to. I think he had a few problems making it, and he personally has a difficult relationship with it. But it's not quite like something like Blood Simple, which is in and of itself a masterpiece and very much part of the Coen Brothers canon, whereas you almost watch it out of intrigue um,
2: just to see how he started out i'd liken it to um bottle rocket i would it's got um a similar kind of vibe um in the sense that it's it's very low budget um it's a little bit rough around the edges as well um and yeah you can see he's not quite fully realized i don't think um i mean it's not like you phil it's been a while since i've seen it as well but i, I actually don't think it's that great of a film from what i remember i remember enjoying it but not not entirely loving it but i do remember like when sort of like the early days of netflix not early early days but when netflix was sort of coming into more households i guess um i do remember it being on there and that's when i watched it but it it was it it took me a while to sort of come back to that one plus it was a little bit hard to find i always found hard eight couldn't just see around and stuff and like
0: yeah I i think i recorded it on a VHS kids ask your parents um, when it was on one day. I thought, oh, there's that PT Anderson film. I must try and seek that out. I mean, Dave, you've watched it quite recently though. Is that right?
1: Yeah, this week actually for the first time. So I've got that. It's very fresh in my mind. And I, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I think it, it just sucks you in the story. It's, it's, it's got this really intriguing dynamic at the beginning between Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley. And I think that develops to a pretty satisfying level. I do agree with Neil. I think perhaps when it gets to that final stage, there's a few little bumps in the story that come across more as slight, slight contrivances, nothing I'd call a problem. Um, It, it just is a film that really impressed me, that I really enjoyed. And it's such a rare treat, to be honest, to see an actor like Philip Baker Hall in a lead role because He's absolutely magnificent and I can't think of anything I've ever seen him in where he's been bad. Um and it's yeah, I, I just I just got a lot out of it. A really good. Yeah, there's film. a
0: hidden there's a hidden secret, isn't there, between um Philip Baker Hall and I think John C. Riley, and we as the audience discover what it is, but John C. Riley never does. Yes. And I, I always remember that final confessional with Philip Baker Hall, not, not confessional, but where he confessed his love for his son. That, that's the moment that really sticks out to me. Um, and as you've alluded to with, with Philip Baker Hall's acting. So definitely, I, I wouldn't say it's um, top of the recommendation list for Anderson films, but um, certainly as a complete, it's, it's obviously very, very interesting. But... Everyone's given one special thing, right? Everyone's blessed with one special thing. I want you to know I plan on being a star.
3: Big, bright shining star yeah. Eddie Adams from Torrance yep Jack Horner, filmmaker. I make uh, exotic pictures in 1977 a kid from nowhere made you think about your name well, my name yeah something a little pesant. Dirk Diggler good name i like your name a lot had a dream of getting somewhere jack horner has found something special in newcomer dirk digner so let me just pop in this a track and you just give a list and tell what you think okay it was a time when disco was king
2: these are the ones these
3: are great yeah those are really cool are they lizard no they're italian do you like my shoes
4: they're pretty cool
3: sex was safe
4: Woo-hoo!
3: Pleasure was a business. Cut! Terrific! Nice work! And business was booming.
4: And the award for best newcomer goes to Mr. Death wow. <laughs> wow. Goodbye, 1979. Hello, 19. Are you ready?
3: But in 1980, come on, you puppies! The party was over. You are fired. What? You're fired. <laughs> fire. It's jealousy. It's
2: deceitfulness. It's vindictiveness. But I mean, God, what can you expect when you're on top? You oh wait, 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 wait. About this part.
1: New
3: Line Cinema presents a portrait of two decades Cinema. in the life of a business. The days of a dreamer and the nights in between Boogie Nights
0: in the same way that that was built on by originally making a short story and then you made um, the feature film Boogie Nights was originally the Dirk Diggler story. That was a short film that then <clears throat> developed into the ensemble piece in 97. And the cast included Mark Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, Heather Graham. And it was about essentially a family of pornographic filmmakers in the 70s and early 80s in the, the San Fernando Valley. I mean, that was the one that really launched him into the stratosphere, wasn't it, Neil? And I think that was when people really kind
2: of took to him as a
0: potential big talent.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um... Two things about Boogie Nights. Um I'd say it's a Scorsese film that never was without the voiceover. Um especially that
0: tracking shot, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good film. Yeah. Um and also it's <laughs> not a bit strange, but do you do you think like it's the most unsexiest film about sex? Yeah, which I'd agree with that. Sexy about <laughs> yeah. it, you know, which is really quite interesting. Um, but is but... it is it about
0: is it about sex or is it about people that make
2: films? I suppose. I Essentially. Suppose yeah, yeah yeah but i suppose because they're making films about well not about they're having sex in these films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it's yeah it's it's strangely unsexy yeah um but yeah i mean boogie nights is 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 fantastic isn't it it's um it had to come out around that time i think i think it, mm. it, it just it's it had to be in the late 90s as well there's just the feel of it um yeah it, it, it's it's brilliant isn't it it's um it's a I kind of missed these ensemble pieces that he used to do as well. Um, there, there was something really, really special about that. And I think that really kind of like doing something that, that with that much ambition really kind of made his mark on the, on the world really. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, great, great film. Just on that earlier subject as well, about it being
0: unsexy with William H Macy to prepare for his role, went to an actual real pornographic film shoot and he, he said how unpleasant it was uh, it really was unglamorous it was really nasty and he kind of didn't didn't enjoy it but um <clears throat> such is the world i get i guess it depends i don't really know that world too well but dave i mean boogie nights why do you think it really struck such a chord because making a film about pornographic filmmakers and releasing it into cinemas you wouldn't expect it to have such a big success, but somehow it, it broke through that mould, maybe for the reasons we've just been discussing.
1: Yeah, I think the media around the time sold it as a slightly shock, um, sort of shock expose of the porn industry and also Burt Reynolds' kind of move, big movie comeback. Those were kind of two selling points that used, but... Uh, I, I do I do think it is more about it's almost about the desperation of filmmaking for people who a, a, a big thing with Burt Reynolds character in the movie is that he actually wants to make something of value he wants to try and imbue a narrative and um into his films um and there's this this it's quite it almost I wouldn't say endearing but it's it makes you kind of get on side with what he wants to do because he's, he's got this slightly higher vision for what is really against the actual work he's doing. um And it's a very fun and witty picture. And I think that's why it works. I think it plays with that very well. Um, It doesn't get too morose or um self-pitying. I think it, I think it keeps the tone really well balanced. Um, I mean, I like it a lot. I, I feel it does maybe meander in parts, which, I think can be PTA's strength and his weakness sometimes um but it's always amusing and entertaining
0: and of course following the journey of Mark Wahlberg's character from you know somebody who's put upon and has a difficult relationship and then he perhaps finds a meaning in his life and then when he goes away from that world that's when he really struggles and he has to come back to it so he does sort of find yeah. a purpose and
1: like you said the you get film that desperation of Mm. trying to make it in in the film industry and maybe finding your options are limited in a way that you didn't expect
0: no and it has that element of restraint we talked about it being unsexy but you don't see the main part of Mark Wahlberg's character until the very end um, it's something that you know they're, they're they're holding back so I mean Boogie Nights after he made Boogie Nights he was sort of told that and if you listen to film stories with Simon Brew in which he talks about Boogie Nights someone said to him quite interestingly I think he talked about Boogie Nights and The Sixth Sense was after you've made your big film your next film is big because you can do whatever you want certainly for characters uh, individuals such as Anderson uh, and Sheer Marlon at that point you can do anything anyone will give you any amount of money to do whatever you choose to do after that, they'll start expecting you to move on. They'll start to expect, expect you to be a bit more restrained or maybe do things for the studio or do a one-for-me, one-for-you sort of situation. Now, what I'm going
3: to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus two fifty, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Specter. There is the story of a boy genius. a
4: Thomas Kidd, Jean-Baptiste Paul year.
3: And the game show host. And Jimmy Gator.
4: Live from Burbank,
3: California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Bejar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Kedunny Smith. I used to be smart. Now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Harold Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh Find him.
4: I'm Frank T.J. Mackey.
3: His lost son.
4: What did he say? Because I am not gonna take care of him. What does he want? And
3: the dying man's wife. I'm Linda
4: Partridge. <laughs>
2: To care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's right. no one else. No
0: one
4: else!
3: The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother.
4: I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. I love you,
3: too. And the daughter.
4: I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again?
3: And the police officer in love.
4: I'm Officer Jim Curring. Life is very stressful,
3: and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So, if you
4: are this person, please leave me a message at box number eight two.
3: And this will all make sense in the end. It's not an easy job. I have to take everything and play as it lays. Sometimes people need a little help. Sometimes people need to be forgiven. And that is a very tricky thing on my part, making that call. But you can forgive someone, well, that's the tough part. What can we forgive? Was that unclear? Kind of.
2: God.
0: He followed up Boogie nice with Magnolia, another ensemble piece sets in the San Fernando Valley in 1999, following a series of interconnecting stories and characters set to a soundtrack by Amy Mann. He brought back a lot of the actors that had appeared in Boogie Nights, Julianne Moore, William H. Macy, uh, John C. Reilly, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tom Cruise in the sort of film that we don't really see him make anymore. He doesn't really do the art house. He's very much in the making the blockbusters that he was perhaps became famous for. But I mean, Magnolia was just something that personally, I, I said at the start, it really, really just blew me away because I, I'd never seen anything quite like it. I kind of think, I wish I'd made that. And there are just so many deft moments that are kind of ridiculous, but at the same time inspired. I mean, the, the Amy Man sing song and the Raining of Frogs. I mean, was that, did you have a similar approach to Magnolia,
2: Neil? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the time, I was still very young and, well, not very young, but pretty young and impressionable. Um, and it was a very a time when I was discovering a lot of interesting cinema. Um, So it came at the right time for me. Um, Even when I watch it now, I know it, for me, Magnolia was always the one, even, even after there will be blood came out and um, even for a few years, but there will be blood took took it over really. But, um, but there's something, there's something really, really quite unique about that film. And I think, it's just the way the way the film kind of flows and the the sort the the over like the almost like excessive melodrama of it all really. It's it, it's it's very it's it's quite bold, I think. Um especially as you, as your third film. Um and just like the extremities of all the characters as well. There's no there's no sort of like everything's just Turned up to eleven, isn't it? Really, in that in that um, film, um, yeah. And then the the way it ends and the sort of like biblical connotations with it all and everything else to go with it, yeah, it was it it was quite an experience. And it's always an experience when I watch it. In many ways, I guess,
0: David, it, it wouldn't probably be made today because something like that would perhaps be a a series or a TV drama, partly because of the length of it. Obviously, it does. I think just tip over three hours. It's certainly around the three-hour mark, but you'd expect that to be a, a sort of at least a four or maybe even ten-part series, where it to be made now and and put on on a streaming service.
1: Yeah, maybe. Um, I think there's a bit more of a taste for longer movies now, so perhaps it 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 would be but given the nature of, of the Sword, narrative. Uh, yeah, the the narrative. I mean, Neil mentioned the melodrama. I think I think that excess. I struggled with I recall at the time it is a long time since I've seen Magnolia um, but it is making me having reflected on the film I do feel it's a film I need to revisit uh, because I did enjoy it Um, I just felt it was a bit much over three hours and yes perhaps these days it would be a TV series and maybe work even better Um, but hmm, it's, it's an interesting question Definitely. Um, I could definitely see it working very well as a TV series.
0: I mean, the the, the soundtrack by Amy Mann is just magnificent. I remember having that on. Um, you showed my age here, but CD. <laughs> listening back to that, um, but do, do you think that Magnolia can be viewed as pretentious in some respects? I personally don't think that, but I can understand how some people would have that kind of response to it.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I I'd say no. I, yeah. Sorry, Neil.
0: Neil?
2: I just said, I said I can I I don't agree with that, but like I, I think, um, I think I could see how people could see that,
1: definitely. Just always oh, yeah. that danger when someone's trying something different. I think you know you yeah. always get that danger of that accusation being thrown, don't you?
0: So, Neil, what are your thoughts on were Magnolia being made today? It would more likely be a TV
2: series? I think, okay, so if it was like if it, if it was made in the same style, I don't think it would work because that film has got continuous momentum throughout, and that's one of its characteristics, I think. It makes it quite interesting and unique. It's always just going at full speed. So I, I feel like, I know it clocks over three hours, but it doesn't, for me personally, maybe I'm slightly biased, but it doesn't feel like a three hour plus movie. Just like The Godfather Part 2 doesn't feel like a three hour plus movie for me personally. I understand how it could be for others.
4: I'm sorry about that. I wanted to ask you something because you're a doctor, right? I don't like myself sometimes. Can you help? help do you think I can give you?
0: I'm going to go and eat tomorrow night. Do you want to go with me?
4: I didn't ask for a shrink. That must have been somebody else. Also, that pudding isn't mine. Also, I'm wearing a suit today because I had a very important meeting this morning and I don't have a crying problem. Okay. This is Barry. Hey,
3: baby. I guess we've got
4: this number. You cancelled your credit card. I need you not to cancel your credit card and I need you to up your limit. Four blonde brothers came after me. On, where are you going? We know where you
2: live! What's the problem? One of your employees has been threatening me.
4: Shut up! You? shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! Shut up! I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. All mm-hmm. right.
0: That's not- After making Magnolia, Anderson was then asked what he was going to do next, and people thought he was joking when he said, I'm going to do an Adam Sandler film. At the time, Sandler was known for playing comic characters with a sense of rage in poorly received critically, but financially successful films such as Happy Gilmore, The Waterboy and Big Daddy, which is a world away from the weighty award-nominated dramas that Anderson had become known for. Now, Punch-Strong Love was a far more stripped-down affair than Magnolia and Boogie Nights, a romantic comedy that was half the length of Magnolia, I personally love it. It was the first Adam Sandler film I truly enjoyed, but it wasn't a big success. Do you think, Dave, it fell between two stools in some
1: respects? Yeah, I think possibly those people going in expecting the usual Adam Sandler stuff um, would have been confused. And it's those expecting a rom-com as well would have been confused. It's neither of those things. (laughs) Um, I mean, for me, it's my second favourite PTA. It's... For me, a love story I found highly relatable. I think it's got a real sympathy and brings out the wit in what Sandler's capable of and uses that performance he has in a very intelligent way to convey someone who's very unsure of the world around him. And Emily Watson is enigmatic and cunning and subtly charged. And she's such a brilliant and undervalued actress. And I also think it's the film where PTA's long shots are best used for me because they evince a sense of Sandler's isolation and inability to relate to what's going on around him. Um, and it is, it's it's unsettling in quite an abstract way, uh, the film, but it's also sweet, touching and honest at the same time. And I find all those elements, it's You have to be a masterful filmmaker to make those disparate elements work. And it really does for me in this film. I think it's a film with real heart, real purpose that really knows what it's doing. And I think it is a film that I can understand people not getting on board with. But I think for those people who do, it means a hell of a lot to them. And I'm definitely one of those people.
0: Was it so much that people didn't get on board with it or was it so much that people weren't really sure? I mean, we shouldn't perhaps read too much into the box office, but, but Neil, I think it it really tapped into Sandler, who was known for this rage, which was done to broad comic effect um, in some people's minds, I guess, with, with the aforementioned films. But Anderson managed to see something, and he specifically wrote the role of Barry Egan for Adam Sandler very loosely based on a true story there was actually somebody that did manage to work out that the giveaway on these pudding competitions was actually worth more than the value that he was paying for the puddings and if you get the the dvd or the blu-ray there is an extra feature about this guy that bought up all these puddings he got literally um filled up his garage i think with them and then claimed loads and loads and loads of air miles and never have to pay for a plane ticket ever again and then donated all the money to the Salvation Army and got tax relief. So there, there is actually an element of truth in it, bizarrely. But it's just interesting how Anderson tapped into what he saw in Sandler. Uh, and then there's that interesting take on it. I don't know if you're aware that Barry Egan is actually Superman. He wears sort of blue and red, and he's got this
2: strength that he doesn't realise he has. I think tapping in... I always find it interesting when you, um, when you tap into talent in... That way, like, like, okay. So, for example, let me the, a film that's very fresh in my mind at the moment is Have you guys seen The Whale yet? Darren Ar- Aronofsky's with The Whale. Not yet. I know no. It's very, no, not yet. No. That feels like a similar thing to Punch and Glove for me. You know, you, let's get let's get an actor you wouldn't normally associate in these kind of movies and 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 um and put him in this situation uh, or this film. And yeah, I mean, it's a funny one for me because Dave, you you spoke about that so eloquently and, and and so like you, you clearly got a lot of love for this film and i know a lot of people do and i liked it a lot but a, i haven't seen it in quite some time um but also it does rank sort of towards the bottom for me in my pta list not right at the bottom but it does it sort of sit there sit let's say i've got a list one to a nine of all his movies and it sits number seven which seems really harsh but um so it didn't take me as much as say it has say these other films ever or, or, or what other people think of this film, I, I it's it's certainly a sleeper hit, isn't it? As well, hit and you know what I mean, a sleeper. A, a, yeah, it, it it seemed to have taken a while for people to really really take on board with it, and maybe I should rewatch it really. But and it was a very interesting film, but yeah, I'm not I'm not massive on it to be fair. It's that interesting
0: juxtaposition of you know commercial versus critical success in in a lot of respects and adam sandler reportedly when he he read the review of punch drunk love and it was a positive review he was in a restaurant and he threw the paper in the air and he said they finally like me and then paid for everyone else's meal because he was just so pleased he finally got some good reviews i mean i remember something you said to me a while ago dave was that pete anson's so good that he made adam sandler good and i, I kind of question whether sandler actually is a good actor and mark hermode says the problem with adam sandler is that he is a good actor he just doesn't know that he know when he to make good films and he makes all these terrible broad comedies but he's he's done quite a few serious films uh, and i know that punchline love is still a comedy just not in the sense of, of the other sandler films but he went on to make funny people reign over me men women and children and more recently uncut gems um is it that he's actually quite a good actor? He just doesn't know that the films are good, or doesn't know when a when a film is good, or is it just that he knows what sells?
1: Yeah, I think I think he's found a niche where he can make a good career, and that's fine. But when work he really values comes along, he he takes the opportunity. Um, uh, yeah, I, I imagine it's something along those lines.
0: I mean, I'd say that Uncut Gems is sort of a more, if you like. It's more of a drama, isn't it, than, than Punch Drunk Love? But, I mean, such an intense film and his performance is is quite something. And that was a moment when I thought, well, that's not what I'm used to seeing because, as we mentioned, Punch Drunk Love did tap into his rage and, and his comic sensibilities. So.
3: Ladies and gentlemen... I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills, and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. you will be cast up and thrust back to partition! I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me.
4: We'll offer 150,000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel?
3: I look at people and I see nothing worth liking.
4: Don't bully me, Daniel, please!
3: I see the worst in people.
4: We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil!
3: I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I can't keep doing this on my own with these um, people.
0: (laughs) Uh, Anderson followed up Punch Drunk Love with a very different affair, a film we've mentioned a lot, and I think we're going to spend a bit of time discussing this, but there will be blood which was based on Upton Sinclair's novel Oil and tells the story of Daniel Plainview, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, a ruthless capitalist oilman. And the narrative follows his humble origins to great wealth and deals with corrupt religion, represented by Eli Sunday, played by Paul Dano. And the film was a commercial, critical and award success. And it, it was one of those films that almost felt like a, a kind of landmark moment in cinema and there was a bit of a renaissance of, of westerns at the time, the assassination of Jesse James by the cow Robert Ford had just came out, the Coen's made no country for old men and this sits right at the top of the pile as dare I say it, the best film of the century thus far, the best American film of the century thus far? No question
2: that's a I, I mean that sounds like a really, really bold statement but I, hmm. I with you i think it's where well, i, I I'm, dare i say it because it is a bold one but i, I think with this it, it, it fits uh, doesn't it it's the citizen kane of uh of modern times you know it's um it's it's a masterpiece in every every right every single aspect of filmmaking every branch that is needed to create a film in my opinion this is this is perfection um i don't even know where to where to start really but i think um i mean it's it's there's just so much going on isn't there in the sense that like you've got you've you've got family you've got religion you've got madness you've got hatred you've got a character who has no sense of like lust or desire or anything like that and, and when you think he does he wasn't you know um it's it, it's still something like i've never seen anything like it and i've never seen anything since and I, I would even i'd argue like i agree with you phil i think it's it is just it's a masterpiece i, I want to go
0: watch it again now right, right now <laughs> so he's just 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 talking about it. i mean it's centered around I shouldn't say it's centred around, but there's so much talk about Daniel day lewiss performance, which is one of the great, terrifying screen performances in a lot of respects. Uh, I remember he made his comeback with Bill the Butcher, or as Bill the Butcher, in Gangs of New York, and that was really a remarkable, intense performance. And I think that was one of the very first films I I saw him in. And then I since went back and watched the likes of My Beautiful Laundrette and, and My Left Foot. And that was a real operatic commanding performance in an ensemble film and this one just sort of managed to even outdo that in terms of its kind of dramatic gravitas didn't it Dave
1: yeah I think it did um by a long way um I mean really yeah Gangs of New York and even Dave Lewis's performance in Gangs of New York pale compared to There Will Be Blood um it's uh, as you, as you've mentioned it, it really does have that western feel to it um, i think it is a western in in many respects um and there's just such a menace about the film that is palpable and that is fed through day lewis by the director and the production team it's really i mean Neil, you've used the word masterpiece. I can only agree. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, I, I, it was a film that, as I say, it blew me away in the cinema, and I even when I've rewatched it a couple of times, it's still had the same effect on me. Um, uh, there's just a, a great dynamic between Day Lewis and Dano as well. Um, really, two villains of the piece occupying the. What appears to be on the surface antagonist and protagonist roles, but they're both villains in my in my view. And the link Plainview has to humanity through his adopted son, how that is ripped away from the audience. It's it's quite gut wrenching and. You you just have to admire such bold storytelling decisions when it comes to Hollywood films because so often they go for the easy answer, the uh, the sweet and saccharine conclusion, and I don't think that happens here at all, <laughs> say the least.
0: Not. I mean, we, we've perhaps been a little guilty of it ourselves, but you know the other uh, just now talking about Daniel Day Lewis, but obviously Paul Dano's performance is is equally as important to the film. Um, and, and and extremely impressive as well. Um, but perhaps not quite as, doesn't have quite the gravitas because it's not the central character in the same way that uh, Daniel Plainview is. But we talk about the great American novel and in many ways, There Will Be Blood was, was that on screen because it dealt with these issues. It deals with corrupt religion. It deals with capitalism. It deals with family. It deals with all these pillars and these fundamental elements of, western society um in a really interesting way and um, it's critical of them or certainly critical of elements of capitalism and elements of religion but it it's not preaching about the great evils of them because it's too skilled a film for that and too clever um to to as you say point up easy answers dave
1: yeah i think it presents capitalism as opportunity in one sense, but also when you put it in the hands of a person like Plainview, they can corrupt that and they can fall foul of greed and just consume, consume, because that's all they're driven to do. It's a very psychotic trait, and that's the problem with capitalism in that it allows the most ruthless to succeed over perhaps those who are more hesitant. And you look at the purpose of Eli Sunday in the film and he, his character, Paul Dano's character, um, shows how capitalism consumes faith and the cost of the collective soul in society that, that, that ensues. And as I mentioned, Sunday's a villain and, and that's because the hypocrisy and outright corruption of many religious figures... Associated in a capitalist society is partly to blame for that.
0: Yeah, I remember, Neil, when I watched it, I said that in some respects, Eli, I felt, was slightly worse than Daniel because he wants the same thing, but he hides under a cloak of righteousness that Daniel doesn't do. So
2: on that level, he's more of the villain of the piece. He's definitely the least, less likable of the two characters, but that's, yeah... I doesn't mean, have the charisma he, does he, yeah. he he doesn't no no um but yeah i mean you mentioned earlier about all dana's performance and um you, you i think you are right it does get a bit understated um i think i'd only seen him in little miss sunshine prior to this so uh <laughs> i think i a, watched that after this <laughs> yeah, bit of a bit of stark contrast there really yeah. but, um, but yeah i mean i think dave you you really highlighted some really good points there as well um, the contrast between capitalism and religion. And it's almost like a, a, you know, like a battle between the two, isn't it? I suppose, in, 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 in within their characters and their their wants and needs and where they want to succeed. Just, just thinking
0: back, I suppose, to what I said previously, almost retracting that, you have those two juxtaposed scenes of Daniel Plainview's baptism when he gets baptised and then after this really dramatic sort of exorcist style scene, he stands up and shakes Eli's hand and said, let's build that pipeline. So he's almost pretending to be religious to get what he wants. And then at the end, you have Eli being told by Daniel to to denounce God as a superstition, uh, and he does that in order to get what he wants. So I said that Eli was perhaps worse earlier because he was under a cloak of righteousness, but then Daniel pretends to be in order to get his way. Yeah. And you know, it, there's, there's so many levels to it, and it, it, it's... There's so much to it, but I mean, we've talked about earlier films and maybe slight issues we've had with Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love. Not big issues, um, obviously, but with There Will Be Blood, it's hard to find fault with. (laughs) It really is, because it it is, as we say, a masterpiece. Maybe that term's overused, but with this case, absolutely.
1: For me, Um, it is a flawless film. I mean, you've got that incredible score and... Just it.
0: cinematography <laughs> Yeah, editing, where, do you,
1: where do you finish it yeah, yeah I mean I often say about Goodfellas
0: point. I think you know if you go back through Goodfellas I don't think there's much you, you wouldn't be able to improve it you put it through the edit again uh, or, or could remake it you wouldn't need to and it's perhaps the same with There Will Be Blood
3: are you mixed up no sir are you more jumpy than you were before no sir and how's your sleeping I sleep just fine sir Do you, you have nightmares? Not as much as before. You've had violent episodes. <laughs> yes, sir, we all did. You pulled a knife to the throat of an officer. <laughs> yeah. Will you we box that out? How would you yourself rank your overall health? Strong. What about this last episode on the way home? What episode, sir? The episode you had on the way home here. I don't don't remember an episode. You have no memory of what happened? (laughs) We were were celebrating. We were drinking and dancing. I don't remember an episode. Was there a fight? (laughs) What happened? Let's just see
1: if we can help you remember what
0: happened. Okay. And how do you follow up something like There Will Be Blood? Well, Anderson came back with The Master a few years later, which follows a World War II drifter, played by Hawakin Phoenix, who is pulled into a religious cult-like movement called The Cause, led by Lancaster Dodd, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. The film was initially thought... By some to be indirectly about Scientology, but Anderson read that after wars, there was often a rise in prominent spiritual movements, which makes perfect social sense when you think about it. The film received generally positive reviews and picked up Oscar nominations for Hoffman, Phoenix, and Amy Adams. It wasn't quite as big a commercial success. It's a film I liked and admired, but did have fault with. I think one area, Neil, was that it maybe lacked a little bit of direction. And when you contrast it with "There Will Be Blood," because playing view as a capitalist, he has a very set goal of where he wants to go to. Whereas Walking Phoenix is a drifter, and that maybe reflects in the the narrative of the film. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I do I do quite like this film, but yeah, I think it does. It is a bit bitty. I was I will say that. Um, and yeah, it, it does kind of like float through because that's an interesting point. What you say about Phoenix's character? He's a bit of a drifter, and the film feels like it's drifting through this kind of journey he's taken with um with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character and, and and everything he's attached to so yeah I would agree with that.
0: And Dave I mean religion is quite a key thing we've talked about in many respects with There Will Be Blood it's fairly on the nose with Magnolia there's a lot of biblical overtones and so with this he talks about cult-like movements um it's something that constantly crops up in Anderson's work in very different ways isn't it?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's a really good point that, and maybe this is another, moment just to go slightly on off on a tangent, but how Anderson uses his lead character to create the feel of the film, the direction of the film, and here Phoenix is, he's a drifter, the film drifts, and that also, I think, plays quite well into the religious theme because Religion is almost something people who are lost without purpose drift into. Um, so I think, I think there's quite a... I think he really earns the style of the movie, which is why I admire it. I, I did struggle to like it. But I think in terms of it tying in with his wider religious themes across all his movies, I think The Masters, perhaps the the example with... I, I know I mentioned it, it's a film that drifts, but it in terms of its ideas on religion, it has the most clarity. And I think it's a good way that leads those religious themes in Anderson's films forward. So The Master's quite good. If you if that's what interests you, I think The Master's quite a good film to start with almost.
0: I suppose a lot of his characters are all about, or his films, I should say, are all about people trying to find a purpose, although mm-hmm. Plainview in There Will Be Blood has a purpose, but in Magnolia there's individuals trying to find their way, Dirk yeah. Diggler in Boogie Nights, and then again in this, which is inevitably where as you said people can come to religion because they will find meaning and purpose in it i guess now
2: mm. yeah it's interesting you say that actually because i suppose maybe finding purpose and loneliness are tied, maybe um but these characters always feel very lonely even if they're very confident or they're at least projecting confidence i.e daniel Plainview, um eli sunday um it, it, there seems to be this this theme of, of that, and I think uh, the master's no different, really.
1: Yeah, I think Phoenix's character is very lonely in uh, the master, and um, there's a sense religion doesn't really do much to alleviate that there's still a sense of directionlessness and purposelessness as he moves on. Um mm. You know, I think that's a very valid point.
4: It's the tail end of the psychedelic 60s and paranoia is running the day. If it isn't Charlie Manson, it's the LAPD or the FBI or the mysterious body of something called the Golden Fang. So what's all this now? Everything's gone from groovy to where you at, man? Suggesting a high level of fear or discomfort with the way things are headed. this is doc sportello he's a private investigator whoa are you all right am i are you and like a peculiar planet in today's horoscope in through the door walks doc's ex-old lady shasta and those five little words i need your help doc Ears should be running sunny Southern California as in days of old, like the Watts Riots or the Hollywood Blacklist. Look at the greedy little hippie. But every once in a while, a hero like Doc Sportello shows up to help salvage his generation and guide it back to more merciful shores.
2: Is that a swastika on that man's face? No, it isn't. That's an ancient Hindu symbol, meaning all is well.
4: Maybe you'll just want to see the movie Inherent Vice.
0: Anderson then followed up the master with Inherent Vice in 2014, a mismatch of pulp, neo noir, comedy, and mystery set in the LA criminal underworld. It received a positive reception and starred Walking Phoenix again. It's a film I've always struggled to describe. I mean, would you say, Dave, that that's sort of the point of it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've read Thomas Pynchon's book um, as well. So, and it's, yeah, I'd say the film does capture the spirit of the book, in my opinion. Um, And that's kind of maybe the film's problem. It does meander a lot and both book and film play for this abstraction that does feel overreaching at times and I did find in parts I, I mean inherent vice I I really had to watch it two or three times for a decide before I could work out whether I liked it or not and I do I just think sometimes the humor is a bit irritating and the film lacks purpose in parts um but it's also got this again this this lonely guy who's trying to find purpose um and ostensibly you think it's going to be through love but really he's looking for his own place in the world and i i think i think anderson finds a pretty solid conclusion eventually in the film which is why i do like it and it, it's it's when the humor works it's very funny in the film as well um and that's also pretty true of the book it it, it goes off on some directions you think i just can't stay with this and then it does bring the story through eventually but it just takes a bit of work um but i think both Pynchon and anderson seem quite well suited to each other in their styles and i think even when you're not quite happy with everything you're watching you are still involved and i think inherent vice is a good example particularly of a film that keeps you involved even when everything's maybe not quite <laughs> where you want it to be narratively.
0: I think it's perhaps the film, the Anderson film, I know least least of all. Um, and I would include Licorice Pizza in that just because i watched that a bit more recently. We, we, we will come to that. Neil, what were your takes on Inherent Vice?
2: Yeah, similar to yours, Phil. Um, I do remember enjoying it. Um, I did watch it I've seen it again since, but um, the first time I did watch it was on a long, long haul flight. I say long, long haul flight because I was on there for about ten hours, and um, and that didn't help the situation and the, the narrative at all by any means. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it 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 because it, the, I mean the stoniness of it, the the that, the it, you, you just feel like you're high when you're watching it. It, it give it emits that kind of. Those stoner vibes, or yeah, it's it, It's a very difficult film to discuss because it's it's got that. You know, when they say that like Coen Brothers films, nothing happens in Coen Brothers films. Well, I always argue that things do happen, and the joke almost is that they don't happen. You know, but they do happen because there's quite clear narratives in these films. This is really where where you could say, well things do happen, but it doesn't amount to anything. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing either. It's just it just didn't really work that well for me. I think.
0: Interesting. It's just funny, on a complete side note, you mentioned watching it on a long haul flight. I remember I think I went on my honeymoon and I'd I um, know well, I went on my honeymoon, but uh, I, I remember getting on the plane and There Will Be Blood was one of the films on in the in-flight movie and I, I hadn't seen it at that point. Perfect, I just remember totally thinking <laughs> i remember thinking i i can't watch this on a small screen on a plane i'm just gonna have to leave it i you know having not seen the film but everyone was raving about i said i'm just gonna have to leave this because some films you can watch on planes some films you can't i think maybe inherent vice is perhaps not a bad choice in in some respects given the sort of more jovial nature of it but um yeah maybe given the intricate details of some of the interweaving elements of the plot is perhaps not something you can easily follow on a a 10-hour flight. You
3: can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. (sighs)
2: Secrets.
3: Good morning. Will you have dinner with me?
2: Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long
0: time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful.
3: I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true, and I
1: have given him what he desires most in return. (laughs) Every piece of me.
2: She's
1: barely looked at you this evening, has she?
4: May I warn you of something? My brother can feel cursed that love is doomed for him.
1: I don't like the fabric. Maybe one
3: day
2: you'll change your taste.
4: Maybe I like my own taste.
3: Just enough to get you into trouble.
2: Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! There is an air of quiet death in this house.
3: You're not cursed, you're loved by me. Stop playing this game.
2: What game? What precisely is the nature of my game?
3: All your rules and your clothes and all
2: this money and everything is a game. This
3: was an ambush. Stop! Are you sent here to ruin my evening
2: and possibly my entire life? Stop it!
4: Whatever you do, do it carefully.
0: Anderson followed up Inherent Vice* with Phantom Thread, in which he reunited with Daniel Day-Lewis for what is to date, very sadly, the actor's last film role. It was in 2017 and explored the relationship between day lewiss fashion designer Reynolds Woodcock and his relationship with Waitress Alma, played by Vicky Krieps. It's a film that could easily have been quite dry, but I think really soars Dave mainly because of the, the two performances. And that's not to bemoan the, the writing or directing, because I don't think there's any problems with that. I just think that it had to get the casting right.
1: Yeah, um couldn't agree with you more. Um, I didn't actually expect to like it as much as I did, even though I love Anderson's films and I was sure I'd get something from it, but I love it, in fact, and they are. Benedict Lewis and Vicky crepes are indeed incredible, as you say, and there's a real genuine chemistry there. I think it, and I think this is also down to the direction and the production as much as the actors and that it's really does turn the artist and muse relationship on its head. Um, and one thing I think that is really inspired throughout the whole film is Daniel Day-Lewis plays Reynolds Woodcock and Woodcock's love of food noticeably comes at moments of inspiration. Um, it's very key thematically because food underlines sexual attraction, artistic inspiration, obsession and collapse. So it's a real signifier and, yeah, it's also a film that makes me really hungry when I'm watching it. Um she doesn't take much, admittedly, but
0: <clears throat> I, I do love the the ending to it as well, when I don't want to give too much away, but what, what she does to him and then his reaction to it, I just thought was so unique
2: and interesting, Neil. Yeah, it's like um it's the ultimate stubborn person response, isn't it? It's like I know you're doing this to me, but I'm still going to pretend or act like it's not affecting me in any way. And the, I mean, I think you mentioned the acting masterclass in this film, Dave, but um, the acting in that particular scene is just fantastic. It's just such a, yeah. I mean, you know, with everything said about DDL, you know, it's, I, I really think that's, that's a good, an excellent example of why he arguably could be the greatest. Um, also, on the note of acting, I'd like to mention Leslie Manville. And, um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Just, I mean, first of all, like, you know, I'm a massive Mike Lee fan, so um, I always saw her playing supporting actors, uh, supporting characters, excuse me. Um, so to see her up there on on this level, again, opposite Daniel Day-Lewis, was fantastic, and I just thought she completely held her own. Oh, definitely. Uh, and deserved everything she got. But, yeah, um, in terms of the, the film itself, I think it's fantastic. Something I find quite striking about this film, um, from PTA, is just how still the camera is. So, from from a purely directing point of view, it's for a, for a, for a director who couldn't keep the camera still. The 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 camera is so still in the in this film. It's almost it's almost like a classic. You know, like just it's it's very classic. The directing style is it's just mm. nicely framed and. It takes its time. The shots take ages to cut and things like that. So you contrast that to what we were talking about earlier on in the episode. We talked about Magnolia and Boogie Dots. It's stark.
0: I remember thinking after I watched Phantom Thread that were it not for the language, that would probably get a U from the BBFC because there's no violence in it. There's no sex in it. There's maybe thematically there's a couple of little bits and pieces that might bump it up to a PG, but there's very little on the screen uh, that would be unsuitable for a, for a younger audience not that younger people would necessarily want or younger children would necessarily want to watch it but that you know, taps into what what you were saying and maybe taps into the old tv shows like the house of elliot or Forsyth saga and in that regard and um, that was the sort of look he was going for given the fact that it was set in in victorian london
4: I met the girl I'm one day.
2: But her mommy is yelling no. And her daddy has told her to go. Listen, young lady. But her friend is nowhere to be seen.
4: So how'd you become such a hot shot,
2: actually? I'm
4: a showman. Dream. That's what I'm meant to do.
3: To the seat with the clearest view. <laughs> and she's hooked to the silver screen.
4: Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? <laughs> Barbra Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands. Like the ocean. Like oh, no. Sand. S- sand. the No, sand? No, but sad sand. Sand. This is fate that brought us here. Our
3: roads took us here.
4: You're so the not my director. <laughs> Do you really want to see my boobs? Can I touch them?
3: See
4: you tomorrow. I think it's weird I hang out with Gary and his friends all the time. <laughs> I think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15 year old friends all the time. I'm not gonna forget you. Like you're not going to forget me.
3: Cross. Roll sound. Roll camera A. Roll camera B. Parking. Action. I'm coming, that
0: Now, Anderson followed up Phantom Fred with Licorice Pizza, his most recent effort to date, the 2021 comedy Licorice Pizza, which explores the relationship between a 15-year-old schoolboy and a 25-year-old woman in 1973, once again in the San Fernando Valley. It was, again, well-received critically, but a film that flopped somewhat at the box office, and I think of all the Anderson films, it's perhaps the one I like the least. I struggled to engage with the lead characters. I found it episodic. I found it overlong, given the narrative compared to something like punch drunk love which is around 90 minutes um they i think you had a fairly similar reaction to it didn't you
1: yeah i did I, it's difficult to add anything more to that my feelings were identical really um i didn't care for it really um there are some excellent moments it's paul thomas anderson it's not there's going to be Good moments, and there is a great cameo from Bradley Cooper. Uh, it's very amusing, and I, I think Cooper Hoffman, Alana Haim, particularly, they're both really excellent actors. But I just didn't. It's not not so much I didn't care if they got together. I didn't want them to get together. I didn't understand the celebration of this push to get them into a relationship by the film. I mean, you reverse the gender of both characters it's extremely creepy (laughs) and maybe i'm missing the point here and i'm happy to hear um um if i have done so um but uh, there's too many absurd suspensions of disbelief as well for example why does a 15 year old get to own two successful businesses with other kids um and why does every older woman have really disturbing crushes on gary and then you've got like things like the sequence with sean penn's jack holden which is just I didn't see what it brought to the story. It was a bit dull. Um, And I I felt the storyline, it kind of annoyed me because it moved away from the very interesting parts like Gary potentially having shattered illusions of being a child actor and the consequences of this infatuation he's got with an older woman. And it it just kind of takes these absurdist turns that I I, I think feel a bit episodic and not really part of a greater purpose.
2: What were your thoughts on it, Neil? Well, I kind of liked it, actually. (laughs) Um, I think, okay, yeah, I I agree with you. It's a bit jarring. It's a bit all over the place. I probably would would agree that it's a bit too long. It probably doesn't really know what it is. Um, Therefore, it's definitely not my favourite PTA movie. But I just, I, I, I liked the leads. I found them, I found the, the, them and the situations they got into pretty amusing. I did find myself giggling all the way through it. Most, you know, particularly when Alena um, is arguing with the sisters in the family. I, I thought that was just quite hilarious, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's fine. You know, it, it it's, it, it's nothing amazing, but it was a lot of fun for me. And it was nice to see him sort of go back to the seventies and, He's based in the seventies or is it the early eighties. I can't recall so now. So seventy-three. But, yeah. So okay, so he's definitely seventies, yeah. So um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I liked it. I, I liked the uh the shift into sort of more lighter, lighter hearted narratives. I guess I did like it.
0: On on that subject of lighter hearted narratives, I mean, he's batted between heavy dramas. There will be blood, Magnolia, Phantom Thread, and these light hearted, fair punch drunk love, licorice pizza, inherent vice. Do you think he's done that with success or perhaps I should phrase that slightly differently? For me, I don't think he's done it with as much success as someone like the Coens who have really batted between sort of zany comedies, Hail Caesar, Raising Arizona, and the likes of No Country for Old Men, Fargo, Miller's Crossing. I mean, do you think, Dave, it's something Anderson has tried to, do and had some success in but perhaps not quite as much success as he would have liked
1: no i think he's actually been very successful at doing it um i know i'm not a fan of licorice pizza but um yeah i think i should say
0: in terms of he's had more success with the dramas than with the comedies but i think that's the point i'm trying to get to
1: Mm. Yes, yeah, uh, I think overall yes, but mm. that's just coming from my perspective that I wasn't keen on licorice pizza, and um, but then I loved Punch Drunk Love, which is ostensibly a comedy, and he he really pulled that off for me. Again, there are people who wouldn't like Punch Drunk Love and like licorice pizza, so you know it's <laughs> it is just my perspective. But um, I, you certainly look at There Will Be Blood, which scored on every possible level critical commercial. Um, you know, it's it, it, and that's a drama. Um The Master did pretty well across the board. Boogie Knights did pretty well across the board. Um yeah, it's my feeling is that yeah, I, I I do agree with you. Um it's not that I don't think he can't do comedy. Um no
0: no I'm not, not suggesting that at all. But it's mm. more more about the fact that when he when he goes dark he's he's brilliant and when he sort of goes light with inherent vice and licorice pizza personally those were the films that i didn't engage with and Mm. maybe even punch drunk love i didn't engage with quite as much as, as as the weighty dramas even though i do really love that film um so but but neil i mean i guess the one of the the geniuses of him is the fact that he does bat between those two and not many directors would
2: I, I think on that point, right, it's really interesting what you said about the Coen brothers, because you, you sort of got me thinking about that. It was like, yeah, you're right, actually. that's Why did they get away with it? Um, I think the audience comes in with a pretense, don't they, really? Like, it's like, I think Scorsese is a good example of this. Um, you know, when you get in a Scorsese gangster film, it's probably going to be pretty good. And it's probably going to be his most more successful kind of work. And then he'll do something like silence or one of his religious epics, and he doesn't really get there. And you know he does something different. And I think PTA kind of suffers from that a little bit as well. And like yourself, Phil, I'm I'm kind of like the sort of light-hearted stuff is on the lower end of the scale for me. Um, but I do think the audience, myself, is uh, also guilty of this. Do come in with a bit of a pretense of like, okay. I'm watching the Paul Thomas Anderson film here. I mean, I'm in the mood for a two and a half hour epic about a character who's deeply flawed and blah, 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 blah. So I think there is, I think, I think that has a role to play with it as well. It's not necessarily his fault as such.
0: I suppose having batted between the, the the darker and the more lighthearted work, it's hard to know what he's going to do next. I mean, I've had a look to try and see what is next on the agenda for him. And I, couldn't find anything. I know he directs quite a few music videos, and he has other things going on. But is there anything specific, Dave, you'd like to see him try and tackle?
1: It's a really good question.
0: It's hard to know, isn't it, with with someone like I'd quite him, like that's...
1: to see him do a war film. I think that would yeah, be really interesting.
0: Yeah. And yourself, Neil, anything specific you'd like to see him go into, yeah. or any sort of genre he
2: hasn't tackled yet? I think. Now you've said war, I kind of agree with you there, Dave. But um I think science fiction would be really interesting. When I mean, when I say science fiction, I mean I don't I'm not talking about Star Wars, I'm talking about something more like on the lines of event horizon or something like children of men or something like that, you know, something something with elements that don't happen in our world but take place in our world or something like that. Gee, that kind of thing. Yes, Solaris type.
1: Yeah. That that would be exciting. Yeah and
0: I guess you know, we've talked about his themes of religion and with with science fiction that would that would certainly come into that so yeah. maybe um if you're listening Paul then we want credit on the on the uh, on the script for that and um, we're your next war epic or your next science fiction epic that's pretty much covered his career but we do like to end these podcasts with recommendations so we're going to pick some of our favorite moments from P.T. Anderson films. What's your uh, first, Dave?
1: So, my first, well, my favourite moment, possibly in all of his films, is from Phantom Threads. It's the scene in which Reynolds Woodcock orders breakfast from Alma, played by Vicky Crepes, when they first meet. And it sums up for me why the film works, because on the page it's just a man ordering a very unhealthy list of food, but on the screen it comes across as a well, it's a seduction scene between two lead characters. There's obviously an attraction there. He orders this ridiculous <laughs> list of food um, and she's saying "You're such a hungry boy and it, it really sets the tone for this um, very interesting use of food as a thematic uh, propulsion for their relationship.
0: Do you think you could eat all of that food in one go? Yes. You could. Yeah. I'd okay. be quite happy
1: to take on. Yeah.
0: We'll put, well, we'll film that and we'll put it on our YouTube channel. Oh, uh, sounds my, good first, <laughs> my first, my um, first,
1: I'll get first the scones. Choice.
0: <laughs> my first choice is uh, from Magnolia. And now uh, we know about the audacious Amy Mann sing song, which is unlike anything I'd seen before. Uh, and the plague of frogs, of course, is a pivotal moment in the film, but I personally just love the pre-credits sequence. Uh, which tells three separate stories of coincidence and chance with superb narration by the late, great Ricky Jay. In some respects, it's a short film uh, that itself captures you from the off. Fairly unsatellite, I must say, but nonetheless, it brilliantly introduces to the film. And then I love the way it comes back you know, nearly three hours later with that cue card. So now then, and then it recounts those three stories again and then brings us back up to speed with the almost epilogue of the the narrative drama of Magnolia. So my first great moment from P.T. Anderson was that opening sequence um,
2: from Magnolia. Neil, what's your first choice? Um, So my first choice, let's dub it the processing scene from The Master. So this is where um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix are sitting in a room and Philip Seymour Hoffman's character decides to start so, uh, a a I don't know, a process called processing. And he starts drilling in with uh, initially quite light questions and it's a bit comic on they're uh and they're having a good good jolly old time and then he's like okay I'm gonna end it and I can is like no 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 we'll we'll continue we'll continue and um so he does and then he asks him to answer the next set of questions without blinking. Um, And the questions are a lot more intense and dive into his questionable personal life and his personal history. And it's a very intense, interesting scene. Um, And once again, some fantastic acting.
0: There's a scene for me that really sticks of that whole film. It really sort of sticks in my memory. I remember that when he confesses about losing his virginity and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, Really comes...
2: uh, yeah, so so I I will choose that, that moment um on the master.
0: Excellent. Dave, what's your second choice?
1: It was really hard not to pick something from There Will Be Blood, but I just it just edged it. I had to go with uh Barry and Lena's first date scene from Punch Drunk Love. Um I think here you really understand who Barry is as a character and the point of the film is to present this guy who just can't see the world the way everyone else sees it. Um, for example, he's, he explains the promotion area in the healthy choice puddings and no one else has, has seen this. He's got this unique way of understanding the world. And then you've, you've got the very amusing where he trashes the bathroom. It's very physical comedy, you know, like um, Sandler's known for, but Anderson brings this pathos to Sandler's shtick and it's funny and uncomfortable, sensitive and tumultuous. And I like how Emily Watson's Lena understands all this. Uh, she's a lot more secure in who she is, but she's perhaps not like Barry. She does see the world differently. She's just accepted who she is and her view of the world and has attained a sense of calm and i think it's this scene that you really understand why these two people are being driven towards each other and that's definitely why it's one of my favorite scenes in all his films
0: excellent for my um second choice i have gone with there will be blood and we know about the brilliant baptism sequence and the unforgettable finale. But there's one particular shot that really stood out and it scared the life out of me when I saw it. It's when the character of Henry is confessing to Daniel that he's not actually his half-brother. And there's just one cut to Daniel Day-Lewis when you see his face and his anger overtakes him. And it's quite a brief shot, but it's a key plot moment and it demonstrates Plainview's very dark character in a very subtle way. And I just remember, really like, make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And in many respects, it's all about day Lewis's performance and the way he demonstrates this just with a simple change. But it's a a great cut and um, a very small moment. But for me, one that really, really stood out in There Will Be Blood. And of course, there are many, many standout moments in that film. So perhaps not one that I initially thought of, but when I went back through the film, I was like, oh God, yeah, I really remember that. It really, really got to me the first time. So that sequence or that shot, I should say, from There Will Be Blood... Neil, what's your second and final choice?
2: So, like yourself, Phil, I've gone for There Will Bloods and I've gone from the gone for the penultimate scene, not the I drink your milkshake scene, but the scene before it where um Daniel Plainview um tells I forget the name of his son now, but um HW. Yeah, HW HW, yeah, tells HW that he's not really his son. Um, and then obviously goes to describe him as a bastard in a basket. Um, I find this scene very, it's a difficult, uncomfortable watch. I'm not entirely sure why I personally find it so difficult to watch, but yet yeah, I can't take my eyes off the screen when I'm watching it. Um, it's, I, I think it's its the bullying nature of Daniel play, playing View's character and the way he the way he tortures him, um, and also HW's reaction as well—that sort of, you know, just giving up, like as in, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done with you because you are a awful, awful human being, and you can see that in his reaction when he, when he, when he discusses it, and the fact that obviously HW is um, hard of hearing, and he makes him talk and not use his interpreter to tell him what he's trying to say and um yeah it's it's just just like i remember watching it in the cinema and going this is so intense and and of, uh, of course you know um he's he's walking away and a, like an intoxicated daniel Plainview's just shouting a bastard in a basket and it's just yeah it's it's intense mm.
0: brings the two almost full circle doesn't it from the very start when he's in many respects, saved him, I suppose, um, yeah. but for his own personal reasons. Uh, and then a really good moment, and, and then it sets up the final scene that we all remember. But equally important to the, the themes of the of the narrative, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that brings us fairly nicely to the end of episode eight of Film by Numbers. Mm-hmm. Many thanks for downloading. We hope you've enjoyed. As I said, you can turn out search outward on Facebook, Instagram, our YouTube channel, and our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Any ideas you have for future episodes linked to numbers, do let us know your suggestions. Next up, we've got episode nine. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.